Malolele, this is Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suiswiki. Coming up, Vanuatu will soon have a new Prime Minister. Also, the first thing that I'd like to see is to have more women in leadership in Palau. Pacific female leaders discuss gender equity in Suva, Fiji. And later, we will always be crippled by the fuel challenge. Caleb Fotheringham looks at climate financing for the Pacific. Vanuatu's parliament is set to elect a new prime minister after the country's highest court dismissed an appeal against the removal of Prime Minister Ishmael Kausakau. Since the middle of last month, the country has been in political limbo after the speaker of the country's parliament declared the opposition group had failed to successfully move a motion of no confidence in the prime minister. Don Wiseman has more. That decision by Parliament came despite the opposition having registered 26 votes to the government's 23 on Wednesday the 16th of August. Last week, the Supreme Court ruled the opposition group's vote to oust the Prime Minister was valid, but granted a stay order to allow the Speaker of Parliament time to appeal, which he did. Today, Monday, the Vanuatu Appeal Court dismissed the Speaker's application, which effectively means Mr Kausakau has been voted out of office. As this programme was being recorded, the Vanuatu Parliament was expected to sit to elect a new Prime Minister. We will bring you more on this story in tomorrow's Pacific Waves. In the meantime, for the latest updates, head on over to our website, rnzi.com. An elder from the Barnabin community on Rambi Island wants an urgent review of the Barnabin Settlement Act. The Act allows the people from the Kiribati Island of Barnaba to live on the Fiji island of Rambi and should grant them dual citizenship. But Tonuwea Taratai, who is chairman of Tabwewa Village on Rambi, says the Act is the cause of the confusion in recent weeks over a planned renewal of phosphate mining on Barnaba. That proposal, agreed to by the Fiji government-appointed administrator, is strongly opposed by Barnabans. Mr Taratai explained the community's concerns to Don Wiseman. I think it's due to the powers vested onto our administrator, one, one man. And uh, what I would like to see in the future is that uh, we uh, will plead to the Prime Minister of Fiji to restore our Rambi Council of Leaders back. But, but before he does that, uh, we need to review our Banaban Settlement Act in light of ICAD recommendations. Because to my understanding, our Banaban Settlement Act is quite colonial in nature in regards to our position in the two sovereignties between uh, Kiribati government and the Fiji government. And that causes a lot of confusion, which I think has caused this problem, giving the administrator certain powers here when uh, it's a bit confusing to us, the Banaban people. We think we need our Rambi Council of Leaders back. Mm. So we know that Sitafini Rambuka has talked about how he wants to restore the body. Um, he mentioned at the beginning of the year that this was oh. a priority for him. He hasn't done it yet. Have people on the island heard from the Fiji government? No, it's only through his administrator. Yes, so uh, which he, like, uh, he appointed. Why do you think so. that this administrator chose to back this scheme without uh, talking to people? He has his own uh, like uh, working group. I think he was influenced by the working group to do that. But uh, what we are trying to say here is that uh, when he came to Rambi to first make his first consultation visit, he told us he was coming back to take the approval from the people of Rambi, which he did not do. Yeah, so his advisors are not people from Rambi. Oh, oh. They're not. Yeah. 
Okay, all right. Do you think there's any way that the people in Rambi and the people on Barnaba would agree to doing more mining? No. The general uh, feeling of the people on uh, the island, they don't want any more mining because the mining has done a lot of damage to the island. The island has effectively been wrecked at this point, hasn't it? What I'm trying to say is that, you know, mining has done a lot of damage on the island and uh, how could they do the water... Water, water system to restore the water system. There's no water there. But uh, what I want is if, uh, we have other options, but uh, not uh, not mining. Just talk about those other options for Barnaba. Yeah. What are they? Uh, like uh, reparations. And uh, there's uh, one country, New Zealand, has agreed for us to come in uh, to, for reparation. It's agreed. Uh, New Zealand has agreed. So, are you sure New Zealand has agreed to that? I haven't heard yes, that. Yes, we are coming there in October, sometimes in October. And you're to talk with the government? Yes, with the government. RNZ Pacific asked the Ministry of Foreign Affairs if talks with the Banban community are planned. Any spokesperson said nothing was scheduled. Earlier this year, the international non-government organisation, the International Centre for Advocates Against Discrimination, or ICAAD, made a number of recommendations for actions the governments of Fiji and Kiribati could undertake to solve the issues. The 2023 Pacific Islands Women Leaders Meeting has concluded in Suva. Women ministers and senators from around the Pacific region gathered to discuss issues such as gender equity, equality and the climate crisis. Parliament and Congress halls throughout the Pacific Islands remain male-dominated. Fina Funua has more. Women empowerment and gender equity were at the top of the agenda at the 2023 Pacific Islands Women's Leaders Meeting. Samoan Cabinet Minister Matamua Vasati Pulofana said at the conclusion of the meeting that her country is seeing greater participation from women in the country's politics. Pulofana said the election of Samoa's first female Prime Minister, Fiame Naomi Mata'afa, serves as an inspiration for women wanting to pursue politics in the Pacific region. Pulofana says in spite of the progress... Samoan traditional cultural norms remain a barrier to women wanting to pursue leadership positions. Gender equality, it's very important, but honestly, it's a bit contradictory with the culture because of the respect between the brother and the sister. And since it's been embedded in our minds from years ago, we need change. We need and it won't be changed immediately. Chair and Palau Vice President Geraldine Sengebao says lack of female representation in politics is one of the biggest gender inequities in the Pacific, including Palau. She says it's vital for women to have a voice in government to ensure issues affecting women are raised and addressed. Sengebao says she's pushing to get more women involved. The first thing that I'd like to see is to have more women in leadership in Palau. Uh, increase the number. We're at 8% now. And the reason why uh, that is important is with more women representation in the Palau National Congress, we'll be able to see more uh, improvement in services to women, but also to end all forms of violence against women in Palau is the vision Uh, moving forward. Participants at the conference included young women and youth leaders from various Pacific Island Forum countries. 
Marshallese Representative Kitlang Kabua became the youngest member of the Marshall Islands Legislature when she was elected at the age of 28 in 2019. Kabua says she's pleased to see young women pursuing leadership careers. To hear from them and to see that they are very eager to help to insert themselves. Uh, in the conversation, to see these young leaders, up-and-coming leaders, be so energized、uh, and committed, I am very grateful. The 52nd meeting of the Pacific Islands Forum convenes in November. The director of climate change at the Pacific Community, or SPC, says the region is getting a fraction of the climate financing it needs. Coral Pasisi says Pacific nations need two billion U.S. dollars annually to mitigate climate impacts, but only sees two hundred and twenty million dollars. Ms. Pasisi also says Pacific nations' climate mitigation promises, called nationally determined contributions, are important despite the region's carbon emissions being insignificant on the global scale. She speaks with Caleb Fotheringham. Pacific countries need to set national determined contributions because they are parties to the convention, right? So that is a requirement for many reasons. Initially, this was about ensuring that countries could say what they are doing to help mitigate climate change. So originally, this was about ensuring that the collective effort of countries can be calculated to see how we're changing the greenhouse gas total emissions. So it seemed to be a little bit less important for our small island states because they contribute so little. But in reality, when the world is moving from carbon-based energy systems and technologies to renewables, our countries cannot be left on the wrong side of that technology change in the world, because it will have huge implications if we remain. Dependent on fossil fuel, which is volatile and takes up huge portions of our government's bills, budgets, we will always be crippled by the fuel challenge.、Uh, so we do need to move to an energy secure future, and renewables are it. If we don't, we will become the dumping ground of obsolete technology, as we have been for many years. When the world went digital and phone technology, we bought up all the analog phones for a dollar piece, and then they were obsolete the following year, and ended up in our rubbish dumps. The same thing happened with combustion engines. When the cars became more fuel efficient, all of the cheap Engines came down to the Pacific because that's what we could afford. The same thing has happened with fuel generators as well. We cannot continue to do that. We need to have progressive policies that help us shift to green energy, just as the rest of the world does. And we have to walk the talk if we want the rest of the world to move in the right direction of、uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Then our countries have taken a very strong stance that they will lead by example. As we get closer to COP, what are the Pacific's main priorities at the meeting? Yeah, I mean, this this year is a big year for transparency to make sure that we get an accurate idea on the total commitments that countries are making and where we are in the greenhouse gas emissions budget, so that we know more accurately what we need to urgently focus on. The establishment of the loss and damage fund is also a very critical one. Um, of course, this is 
a fund that our members have been asking for for nearly 30 years. And again, this has been led by one of our countries, Vanuatu, was very strong in this right from the outset. All the leaders have come behind this, years of negotiations to get to this point. But even if we get an agreement on that funds, from my experience and being a part of the transitional committee to, dis- to develop the Green Climate Fund, it takes another five years to set up all the institutional arrangements, policies, before you even become operational. Then you've got to educate country. It, that's a good eight to ten years before you actually start building a pipeline. We don't have enough time for that. So we need to, yeah, beyond these global movements we need to start looking at regional ones sub-regional ones and national ones that will get resources into countries immediately are pacific nations getting enough climate financing right now no there's a short answer to that we are vastly underserved in access to climate finance and it's not just ndcs it's their national adaptation plans as well which have been in place for a while you know, there's a $100 billion promise. Our region needs at least $2 billion a year. That's a very small portion. There's only 2% of the global promise that we, we could do with. Uh, what we're accessing is $220 million a year, which is less than 0.22%, not even 1% of the global promise. And yet our countries are on the front line of the implications of climate change. That's less than 7% of what they need so there is a huge injustice in the impact that our countries are receiving when they haven't caused this issue and then the onus requirements in order to access those funds so I look at it this way simply and quite without any diplomatic sugar coating (coughs) this is a polluter pays issue right climate finance is provided by countries who have caused the majority of climate change. Our countries contribute so little to that it's negligible, but they are on the front line of receiving that. In what scenario does a polluting paid commitment able to dictate so stringently the ability to access those funds that those affected so greatly by it are not even able to get those funds to spend? And all the rules that come around accessing that are used to prevent the fair disbursement of those resources and use of those resources. That's Pacific Ways for today. Don't forget you can listen back on rnzi.com slash programs. We're also on Apple, Spotify and iHeartRadio podcasts. From myself and the team here at RNZ Pacific, till fast we forward.